This is The Road Less Travelled, presented by Nikki Shea. Welcome to this week's edition of The Road Less Travelled podcast. Sorry, that was a bit loud, but I'm a bit excited to share this week's adventure with you. G'day, it's Nikki Shea. Welcome to the podcast which captures the spirit of Australian travel, discovery, adventure. Where you can join me each and every week where together we'll experience glimpses of adventures, cooking, history and all of that rolled into each episode. So a warm welcome to you. If you're joining us for the very first time, that's a little bit about, in a nutshell, what the Road Less Travel podcast is about. To find out more about the podcast, you can follow us on social media through Facebook and Instagram, and you can jump onto the website, which is fatcatmedia.com.au. Fatcat spelt differently, P-H-A-T-C-A-T. On this week's show, I thought that we would delve a little bit more into the background of, I guess they always say, the five Ps, which is prior planning prevents is poor performance that's what we do we do the five p's in preparation for our next trip and i don't know about you but where do you get your inspirations for your traveling maybe you watch a documentary on tv someone's come back from a trip and says hey you must uh, check this out maybe you've read a book and done a little bit of research and it's taken you off on a different direction you think hey that's a, a, an adventure i'd like to take part in or how do you pick your destinations do you sit and look at the map we have a dirty great dirty great big map of australia up on the wall and at different times we'll sit there discussing uh, trips that we've done and we might just look at a bit on the map and say hey have you been there let's do a bit of research about that particular area that particular destination or town and it goes from there so i guess when you actually get to the destination that is the wrapping up of all the research that you've done in how to get there and that is part of today's discussion of how to get there and how to do your navigation now if you'd like to do some navigation and get in contact with me you can do so do so by either giving me a phone call or an sms on 0427528467 or if you want to drop us an email it is fatcat so p-h-a-t-c-a-t fatcat at iinet.net.au and we will definitely get back to you or you can drop us a message by um, direct messenger or facebook messenger on instagram or facebook whatever you want to do as i said navigation this week and i guess let's sort of backtrack what is it well navigation isn't just the part of getting there and jumping onto google maps or asking siri how you get there that's probably my last guess of what you would do navigation is the art and the science where you determine the position of a ship plane or other vehicle and guiding it to that specific destination now in ye olden days they used to use sextants uh, to navigate um their ships and it's a traditional navigational tool what it does is it measures the angle between two objects such as the horizon and a celestial object such as a star or a planet and this angle can then use be used to be uh, calculate the ship's position on a nautical chart and that's what they used to do in the olden days with the tall ships and you would have seen them in pirate movies and things like that those dirty great big brass things that they look up that's what it is as i said navigation it is the art and it is a science of determining the position of a ship plane or other vehicle and guiding it to that destination destination it requires a person to know the vehicle's relative location so you've got to know where you are um, the position compared to other known locations now navigations and navigators measure the distance on the globe in degrees so that gets us to a point of understanding latitude and longitude which are very important in navigation now if you didn't do geography or it's been a while since you've done geography Latitude is a north-south position measured from the Earth's equator and longitude is the east-west position measured from the prime meridian. There are many different navigational techniques and people have been using some of them for absolute thousands of years. 
In, in relation to that, the earliest navigation methods uh, involved observing landmarks or watching the direction of the sun and the stars, and few ancient sailors ventured out into the open sea. Instead, they sailed within sight of land in order to navigate. And when that was impossible, the ancient sailors watched the constellations to mark their position. For example, the ancient uh, sort of Minoans who lived on the Mediterranean island of Crete from 3000 to 1100 BC left records of using the stars to navigate. Now, compasses, which indicate direction relative to the Earth's magnetic poles, are used in navigation on land, at sea and in the air. Compasses were being used for navigation first by the 1100s and still are the most familiar navigational tools in the world, and that's what I still use today. Another mode of navigation is called dead reckoning. It involves estimating a current position based on a past position, and dead reckoning factors in speed, time and the direction of travel. And when they use it in sailing, it doesn't take into account wind speeds or ocean currents either. However, the only reference point in dead reckoning is your past position. And this can make it pretty difficult to realise when mistakes are made during travel. Another form of navigation is called celestial navigation. And for sailors, the celestial navigation is a step up from dead reckoning. This kind of technique uses the stars, the moon, the sun and the horizon to calculate the position and it's a very useful tool on the open ocean where there are no landmarks. Navigators though, they must be familiar with the different constellations at different times of the year as well as the different constellations such as in the northern and southern hemispheres. The most familiar constellation in the Southern Hemisphere, for example, is the well-known one that we know here in Australia, the Southern Cross. The stars in this constellation are never visible in the Northern Hemisphere above the tropics. And the Big Dipper is a familiar constellation in the Northern Hemisphere, but it's not visible to us in the Southern Hemisphere. Navigators use this method need, uh, need tools such as I mentioned earlier, the sextant, to measure the angle between the objects in the sky and the horizon. They also need, too, an accurate clock or an almanac which gives the positions of those celestial bodies. Now, NASA and other space agencies continue to use sophisticated celestial navigation for many of their missions outside the Earth's atmosphere, so it must be pretty reliable. Those astronauts and the engineers of the Apollo program, they use celestial navigation to chart their way to the moon and back. And the Mars Exploration Rover also uses celestial navigation to communicate information back to the engineers and the researchers here on Earth. Another navigational tool is called piloting and that relies on fixed visual references to determine position and this is probably the most familiar type of navigation. With this technique the pilot must be able to recognise visual markers or identify them using maps or charts and if the pilot misidentifies the markers he or she could take the vessel off course. The ability is poor. And pilots use one of the most important crew members on seagoing vessels. That's what they are. Pilots navigate the ships through the difficult passages, such as the narrow channels, the stormy river mouths, and the harbours with heavy shipping traffic. And with millions of dollars of cargo, such as cars, oil, and military troops, or ships larger than a football oval, the pilot must be calm and responsible, and he or she has to obviously understand the weather, the seabed, or the lake bed, and the channels of a river, and trade winds and currents. The next part of navigation is radio navigation. Now this, it's similar to celestial navigation except it replaces objects that are in the sky and it does it with radio waves being broadcast. The navigator can tune into a radio station and use their antenna to find the direction of the broadcasting radio antenna. 
Now, position can be determined by measuring the time it takes to receive the radio signals from the stations of known locations on the ground or aboard satellites. Radar is a type of radio navigation and its, its name originally stood for radio detection and ranging. Radar is a system that measures the time that it takes to bounce those electromagnetic waves off an object and back to its receiver. And the waves that reflect back to the receiver indicate the object's distance. Now, probably the most modern one is GPS, or as I mentioned earlier, the Global Positioning System. This is a satellite-based navigation system. Now, while the GPS system is funded and controlled by the US government's uh, Department of Defense, anyone with a GPS receiver can use it. The earliest GPS system was launched between 1978 and 1985 with 11 satellites. It now includes about 24 satellites that we know of that orbit the Earth and send radio signals from space. And the system works much like radio navigation, to be honest. A GPS GPS device um, or little GPS system thing that you have, it receives a signal from the satellites and it calculates position based on the time that it takes for that signal to transmit or bounce itself back to the exact position of the satellites and it's highly accurate navigational tool. Here's a fast fact for you. After the mutiny of the Bounty in 1879, some of the crew of the British ship Bounty, which was mutineered and rebelled against the ship's leader, Lieutenant William Bly, Bly and 18 crew members loyal to him were set adrift in the South Pacific Ocean, a little southeast of the island of Tonga. Bly and his crew were sent off in a 7 metre long or a 23 foot boat with food and water to last a few days plus four cutlasses or swords, a sextant and a pocket watch. They had no compass or navigational charts. Imagine being cast down the open ocean. Bly, though, successfully navigated more than 6,500 kilometres or 3,500 nautical miles to the island of Timor in 47 days. Now, Bly's voyage, even today, is to, con- is to Timor is considered to be, by many, to be one of the most remarkable feats of navigational history. And the mouth of the Columbia River in the U.S. state of Oregon, it's one of the most difficult areas to navigate because so many ships and sailors have been lost in the turbulent waters. The mouth of the Columbia is known as the graveyard of the Pacific. Now, the ancient Polynesians, they navigated hundreds of thousands of miles of the Pacific Ocean using a combination of what we now know as celestial navigation and piloting. They were familiar with the constellations in both the northern and southern hemispheres and they relied on oral tradition where the history of their ancestors' navigation was from different islands. And they too, they paid attention to the regional and seasonal weather patterns. They then recognised different species of plants and animals native to different islands. So if a piece of driftwood belonging to a familiar type of tree floated to shore or a bird known to live in a specific ecosystem flew by, these navigators would have an idea of what type of land lay ahead and how far away it was. Another form of um, navigational history is Shackleton's endurance. Ernest Shackleton tried to be the first person to cross the Antarctic continent around 1915. His ship Endurance got trapped and crushed in the ice soon after it arrived in the Weddell Sea. The crew was able to get off the ship and manually haul two lifeboats over many kilometres of rugged ice. Finally, they reached the open water. They sailed the crew to Elephant Island where they lived underneath the inverted lifeboats for months at a time. 
Now, nobody was coming to save them on Elephant Island, so Shackleton and five others took one of the lifeboats and attempted then to sail 1,287 kilometres downward to the South Shetland Islands. The only navigation they had at the time was a sextant, which we know uses the angle between the sun or star and the horizon, which constantly bounces up and down due to the strong Antarctic waves, to calculate the latitude. Now, if Shackleton got the angle wrong, the people on the lifeboat and the people on Elephant Island, they were all dead because if Shackleton missed the South Shetland Islands, there wasn't any land downwind for 8,000 kilometres. So Shackleton must have paid attention to his navigational class. His crew hit the South Shetland Islands in five days. It took them four attempts to make it back to Elephant Island and everyone was still alive on the island thanks to a sextant and a skilled explorer. Welcome back to the Road Less Travel Podcast. This week we're having a little bit of an off-topic discussion. Well, it's kind of relevant to what we do with the Road Less Travel and exploration and and getting out there and travelling, and it's all about this week in navigation. And we've spoken a little bit about some of the, the navigational um, instruments that you rely upon, but probably the most important one is, do you know how to read a map? How to read a topographical map? Well, I often meet people still out on the trail when I'm out walking who seem confused about their location or direction of travel and there have also been massive um, search and rescue operations where groups of people are found not carrying any navigational aid and most are not carrying a map and expect there will be an obvious trail or markers and signs to define their way. Or they may have had a map on their phone but the battery died, making navigation a real challenge. Others we've met have a map but they're confused and they've confessed that they don't really know how to read it. So knowing how to read a map, it isn't difficult. All it takes is a bit of training, a bit of patience, practice and continual use. The symbols, the topography lines and the direction help on a map all require some understanding but the answers are all right there, they're on there on the map. You've got to choose the right map. A wide variety of maps are available for a wide variety of uses. For example, there's road maps for drivers with highways and byways. There's tourist maps for sightseeing which with famous landmarks or conspicuous celebrities. There's topographic, topographical maps for hikers or backcountry featuring paths and campgrounds. And there's sectionals or maps for pilots that feature air routes, terminal areas, plus landmarks, other tall things that planes would have to, be, you know, have to avoid. And a good general free online map for certain parts of the world is Google Maps. However, as I mentioned earlier, it might not be available to you when needed, so it's important to learn how to read printed maps. Now, for all of our adventures, I also use my smartphone and a GPS to provide a quick update on my location, but I always plan my hikes and we always plan our walks and all our adventures using a scaled topographical map, and we always carry a map with us and a compass in our backpack too. Now, for most people in Victoria, I recommend the Outdoor Recreation Guides by SV Maps. We use them every time we're hiking in the areas where maps are provided, and these maps contain excellent detailed topographical and trail data, as you would expect. But there are also a few things that set them apart from other maps that I've used too. One of the things I love are the distance markers defining sections of hiking trails too. This reduces the need to measure scale distances with your compass, and it also allows for educated decisions to be made when planning your hikes. SV's outdoor recreational guides also come with local flora and fauna information, local area history and a wide range of walk suggestions too. This thoughtful feature, it truly assists in hike planning. It also allows us to better understand the trail and the roads that you intend using as well as explore the trails that you might not have been aware of. I too have used this feature many times in order to combine trails into multi-day hikes too. 
Now, you need to understand the map. Most maps are drawn with north located at the top and sometimes this might be depicted using a compass rose or it might simply be stated to be the assumption of the map. If there's no indication to the contrary, presume it's north at the top of the map. Understanding the scale of the map, and what that means is the map scale shows you a ratio of map distance to real distance, and these differ in sizes from map to map. You look for the scale, generally located on the side or the bottom of the map, and it will look like something like a, a 1 in 100,000 ratio, which denotes that one unit on the map is equivalent to 100,000 units in real life. In general, um, probably work with the following scales, a 1 to 25 map for hiking, a 1 to 190 map for driving, and a 1 to 24 map for seeing the entire world. To determine how far your destination is, use a ruler, uh, which you can find on your compass, and the scale to measure how many kilometres it is from point A to B. For example, if your map scale is 1 to 25,000 and the distance from point A to point B is 15 centimetres, the total distance, you just multiply 15 by 25,000 equals 375,000 centimetres. One kilometre is 100,000 centimetres, so the distance from point A to point B is 375,000 divided by 100,000, and that equals 3.75 kilometres. Confused you? you? You'll get there. You need to note, as I mentioned earlier, latitude and longitude. If you're travelling to the next town, this isn't so important, but if you are hiking, sailing, flying, or touring long distances, this might be very useful. And it's super useful when I'm doing my prospecting or if I'm looking for a fishing spot. The latitude refers to the distance in degrees north or south of the equator. The longitude refers to the distance in degrees east to west of the Greenwich Meriden Line. Each degree is divided into 60 minutes, with each minute representing one nautical mile, and this means that one degree is the equivalent of 60 nautical miles. The latitude is represented by the numbers on the side of the map, and the longitude is re represented by the numbers that you'll find at the top and the bottom of the map. And where the latitude and longitude cross at your location, that is your point of reference. Latitude and longitude points are often used when there are no landmarks or roads to help you determine a location, and they're really handy. If you have trouble remembering which is which, the longitude lines are long. The diameter, the diameter of the longitudinal lines is roughly constant, whereas latitude lines they get progressively smaller the further they way up, the further they are away from the equator. Another thing that you'll find on maps is contour lines. The contour lines on the map, they represent how high or flat the land is. Each line represents a standard height above sea level. And when contour lines are close together, this means that the gradient is super steep. The closer together, the steeper the gradient becomes. And when these contour lines are further apart, the gradient is flatter. So the further apart they are located, obviously the flatter the ground will be. When I spoke about the map legend earlier, most maps have that legend or key of symbols on the map itself, and get familiar with how you use your map and how the map represents data. That's key to understanding the rest on the map. In general, maps sort of do the following thing. They have lines in varying sizes, colours, and unbroken or broken lines, which depict, obviously, roads from lanes to freeways and all in between. Mountains in Victoria and on the east coast, oh, they tend to be shown as brown or green, and a height-dependent, darker on the bottom, lighter or white at the top. 
Rivers, lakes and oceans, the other water bodies too generally shown in blue. Forests, woods, parks, golf courses and other large bodies of trees or green space obviously depicted in green. And towns and city limits are often shown in sort of like a little pastel pink or yellow and the size and the boldness of their names indicates the relative population size or the importance. And buildings tend to be shown in grey or black colours. How to use your map. You have your map and you understand how to read it. Awesome. Now you're ready to use it. And if your phone battery has died, the first thing you'll need to do is figure out where the heck you are. And once you know this, you can determine where you're going and the best route to get there. Finding your location using maps and compasses, well, it's pretty easy because you can find your current location by matching what you can see in real life with what's on the map, and this is called taking a magnetic bearing of a distant object. You can forget about your map for now, as all you want to do is capture the magnetic bearing of the landmark from your position. To find the location on a map, you simply take a magnetic bearing of at least two, preferably three, prominent landmarks such as peaks, creeks, valleys, ridges, spurs, saddles, power lines, farms, roads, etc., which you can positively identify on the map using your compass. You simply raise the compass to eye level so you can clearly see the landmark in front of you. Then point the direction of travel arrow on the compass directly at the object which you take a bearing of. Rotate the bezel, which is called which we call the rotating part of the compass, until the north end of the floating magnetic needle, which is usually red or blue. That lines up between the N indicator, luminescent dots or the lines, which are on the flat surface of the bezel or directly over the red, uh, red orienting uh, arrow, depending on which brand of compass you're using. You read the magnetic bearing directly from the bezel opposite the bearing line or direction of the travel arrow. This is the magnetic bearing of the landmark and the accuracy is usually be within um, of sort of 5 degrees or depending how carefully you hold the compass. A sighting compass can improve your accuracy or reduce the error to within 1 degree. You now adjust your compass, rotate the bezel by adding the magnetic variation as indicated on the map to the bearing you've just taken and this is called converting the magnetic bearing to a grid bearing. I know it sounds confusing, but once you do practice, you'll be able to do it. And you can lay your map out on a flat surface and locate the landmark you've just taken that bearing from. And without adjusting your compass bezel, position your compass on the map so that direction of travel arrow is pointing at the landmark. You can align the side of the compass with the landmark and then slowly rotate your entire compass, not the bezel, your whole compass, so that the magnetic needle is facing north and directly over the orienteering arrow. When rotating the compass, make sure that the side of the compass is always touching the distant landmark on your map. You then simply draw a straight line on the map starting from the landmark. Use the side of the compass to draw the line, use it as a ruler, and you are located somewhere along this line. Take another bearing from a different landmark, which is ideally at 45 and 90 degrees from the first landmark, and you convert the magnetic bearing and draw the next line on the map. This second line, it should intersect with the first line. If your bearing landmarks are high, narrow, or not far away, those lines are straight in your compass alignment good. You're likely to be within 100 metres of the location shown by intersecting the lines. If not, you could be located within a radius of up to 300 metres. If you have to walk out of a specific spur or creek, then the accuracy can be critical. You could walk up the wrong spur and be forced to stop and camp overnight due to night falling. And if you take a bearing from a third object and draw in another line on the map, you'll usually end up with a triangle being formed by three intersecting lines and then that is when you've identified your location on the map. I do apologise because that has been a little bit heavy but it's important to, that's the only way I could think of explaining it in sort of relative terms and that is if you get the map out and have a bit of a fiddle around um, it's sort of a step-by-step -step way. 
to clear your head, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll follow up more on a little bit of navigation, map reading, and directions on The Road Less Travel. Back with more in just a moment. You're listening to The Road Less Travel Podcast with me, Nikki Shea. The Road Less Traveled Podcast is a proudly Australian, fiercely independent podcast hosted and produced by me, Nikki Shea, for Fat Cat Media. We receive no corporate payments, which means we rely on self-sufficient financial support. If you can and are able to, we would love you to support us via Patreon. Listen to the Road Less Travel podcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iHeartRadio. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Road Less Travel podcast. We were talking before we went to the break about uh, direction, re- map reading, using a compass, the different type of navigational um, processes there are. For us, where we get our maps and so forth, is a place in Melbourne called ABC Maps. You can find them online at abcmaps.com.au. We have no affiliation with them. They've just been really helpful. And as well as having a normal fold-out map, a lot of nowadays you get the Australian Road and Four-Wheel Drive Atlas made by HEMA Maps. I really recommend that you get something like that. I am very much old school where I like to navigate with uh, Jeff driving or Jeff navigates when I'm driving and having something in front of us. Uh, sometimes having that up on the little touch screen up on the dash can be a little bit disconcerting uh, for us. I actually like to have it in my hand and, and holding it in old-fashioned navigational terms. And the Australian Road and Four-Wheel Drive Atlas by HEMA Maps is a ripper. It comes as uh, fully sort of um, in, in a binder kind of thing. You can flip it back and not rip the pages out, which is really good. But uh, when I'm out on the trail or when Jeff and I are out on the trail, we actually use a fold-up map, um, and that gives us much more greater depth of where we're actually wandering And because normally we're on a trail looking for something, whether it's an abandoned gold mine or an old railway line or something like that. We're looking for specific features, so we'll use a fold-out map. But you can still use the type of HEMA maps where you can uh, do it straight off your, your GPS and have that on little touchscreens. I see plenty of four-wheel drivers using that. And if that's something that makes it easier for you while you're actually four-wheel driving or you're driving in, in that kind of terrain, then by all means, use that. And a good way to put all the, the practice into sort of what we, we learnt with um, a little bit of theory and all that sort of stuff and putting it together, join yourself um, in orienteering. It's a group of sports that requires all the navigational skills by using a map and a compass to navigate from point to point in really diverse and usually unfamiliar terrain while moving at speed. Some people are running through it. They're given a topographical map, usually a specially prepared orienteering map, which they use to find certain sort of control points, they call them. Um, originally, it was a training exercise in land navigation for military officers, and orienteering now has developed many variations, and among these, the oldest and the most popular is foot orienteering. For purposes, um, I guess we'll talk about foot orienteering serves as a point of departure for discussion of all other variations for almost any sport that involves racing against the clock and requires navigation with a map is a type of orienteering. There's also a world sporting event such as the World Games and orienteering at the World Games and the World Police and Fire Games where they use orienteering as well. So if you want to find out more, jump onto your local orienteering website. But one thing that I will really thoroughly recommend to you is make sure that you buy a good quality compass. So what do you look for in a compass? So as I said earlier, if you're lost and maybe you're keen to get out and explore the world, chances are that one day you're going to need a compass, and I really recommend that you have one. A compass is a very simple, very useful piece of gear that is much must for, for all navigation. And generally, a basic orienteering compass is all you need to get out and explore in the great outdoors. However, some extra features can make navigation and route planning much simpler. And there's a huge variety of compasses on the market, all with different features designed um, to suit a variety of needs. How does a compass work? Well, 
primarily and fundamentally it's a very simple piece of equipment it consists of a permanent magnet rotating with minimal resistance about a, a central core if you like and one marked end of the magnetic points to the magnetic north pole and this information can be used for orienteering a map and navigation the needle as we mentioned is mounted inside a housing and situated on a base plate and standard compass is just point north however an orienteering compass which has degrees markings that allows for taking bearings and therefore is much more useful for navigation so what do you use what do you look for well there's some basic things to look for when purchasing an orienteering compass a compass that's easy to read and hold a compass needs to be easy to read and easy to hold in your hand don't buy one that's too small for you accurately um, or if it's too large to fit in your hands or in your backpack make sure you can read it you need one that's legible and accurate and for most applications you need to read or input bearings make sure the compass has has those bearing marks you can see and at a suitable interval for more accurate measurements and most compasses have orientation lines and arrows to assist orienting sort of orientating the compass itself make sure these are clear and legible and finally ensure that the compass is durable you don't want it to break if you shove it in your backpack or you accidentally let it swing into something there's many more advanced features to look for for a compass um, and that improves the functionality of a compass too some compasses come with a scale measurement along the edges um, some come with magnifying lenses often built into them some glow in the dark which makes navigation and bearings at night heaps easier some come with tracing markers um, to trace around which can be useful for neatly marking up a map as we said earlier and a more advanced feature of some compasses too is an offset and that allows the compass dial to offset to match true north rather than magnetic north and this can make it simpler to get bearings from a map with a magnetic offset however too just be mindful it can be confusing so if you don't remember to reset or readjust the compass when you use the map with a different magnetic offset so if you think you're ready to find the perfect compass to suit your needs then try your luck and head into your nearest camping store as i said there's a variety on the market but don't please don't go out and get a cheap one because um, they come to some of them come with little mirrors too so that you can signal if you do get lost you can you know do, do a signal um i've got like a german one it cost me about um 99 bucks just under 100 bucks it's a wicked one um it's got all the features that I need and I use it every time that we go out into the field whether it's for fishing gold prospecting or four wheel driving and even at home I will still use it on the um, fold the map out and planning on our adventures and make sure that make sureing making sure that I get all the directions correct and I get all the measurements correct as well and if you want to find out more about navigational tools where to get maps compasses how to do some more navigation such as um, via the constellations jump onto our facebook page and we'll have significant information so we don't continue on boring you if you happen to fall wake up if you're driving and you listen to this one i hope it's given you a little bit of an insight as i said earlier it was a little bit heavy in some parts but we needed to get that across for the context of this week's show and that's it for this week's show of the road less travel podcast i hope that you've enjoyed it love to grab your feedback drop me an email fatcat at iinet.net.au or send me an sms on 042-752-8467 don't forget to follow us on social media on instagram and facebook please leave us a review and make sure that you share the podcast with all your friends look forward to your company next week my name is nikki shay you've been listening to the road less travel podcast and i hope to catch you somewhere out there on the road very soon thanks for your company take care talk to you next week bye for now Thanks for listening. The Road Less Travelled is presented by Nikki Shea and produced by Fat Cat Media. 